Well, good morning again, everyone. It is wonderful to have you this morning. Uh, we're going to start in 1 Thessalonians. If you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles uh, to the epistle of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses, and this is where we're going to be planted for the day. Um, we're going to look at just this text. And what I'd like you to keep in mind as we go over this, please, please allow yourself to kind of put yourself in the picture, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, if I was giving you the text and you were a, a transparent picture I could put over the text, that's kind of what I want. As we go over this, the, 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 this letter, the beginning of this letter, I want us to see ourselves in this church because that's kind of the point for us in our growth. Um, and we're going to see that all the more with the people of Thessalonica. So if you're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to read the first 10 verses here. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of to come. Church family, Paul is on his second missionary journey. In the text that we're reading today, he's on his second missionary journey, and this is um, uh, one out of three great missionary journeys that we have recorded in Scripture. Um, after having a sharp disagreement with a fellow missionary named Barnabas, uh, Paul and he split up. That's who he was traveling with previously. They split up, and Barnabas took a man named Mark or John Mark, and of course, Paul took Silas or Silvanus. Now, Silvanus, of course, is the longer form of the name as we read in our greeting. He also took a young man named Timothy to accompany him on this journey. So while these two men, Silas and Timothy, both co-workers in uh, the ministry, and both contributing to this group of missionaries, it is generally thought that it is Paul himself who was the main author who wrote this letter on behalf of the group. And in this letter, all three are greeting their audience or their readers, and that is the church of the Thessalonians. And of course, if you're a Thessalonian, you live in a place called Thessalonica. So let's talk about Thessalonica for a sec. 
Thessalonica was located in the Roman province of Macedonia, okay? And geographically speaking, it was central to all of Macedonia. It was positioned perfectly, meaning that Thessalonica was ideal for both travel and communication to other cities. It was easy to travel to, and it was easy to send forth communication to other cities. Now, it was also, essentially it was a gateway, if you will, to the churches to the west and east of it, as well as to the north and south. So it was a gateway to these churches, and it would have been easily to communicate words from Paul to other churches as well. Um, It has a natural harbor. It has a natural harbor. It has an essential and and, and major road that runs right through it, um, providing major access. So it's easy to see why this city had such a large population because of this main road linking uh, 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 Thessalonica to all the other areas in Macedonia. It's easy to see why it was a big city and that it was busy and that it was popular. Um, and it had, like I said, it had a larger population than any of the others. Now, although that it was the largest city as far as population, and although it had this major, these major transportation routes, and it was a commercial center, if you will, uh, a hub, it wasn't just a small Jewish community with a synagogue. That's where Paul and Silas and Timothy would have been preaching and teaching was in the synagogue. It wasn't just that. Folks, Thessalonica, you had your traditional Greek cults, right? You had your philosophers with all their philosophies. You had religions of mystery stemming all the way back from the Egyptians. Um, you had the imperial cult. This was a big deal. The imperial cult, of course, uh, fostered devotion to Rome. Uh, it was the worship of the emperor, if you will. And that solidified and maintained good relations with Rome. So that cult was represented as well as others. There were more. But what was represented here was anything other than what Paul was teaching. So it was creating an environment, okay, creating an environment that would threaten anyone who proclaimed to this a lord and king other than the emperor or other than the gods that were worshipped. And here we have a lord and king called Jesus being presented. And that's where we're at in our story right now. We have a beautiful greeting and we have an encouraging uh, message from Paul. But in this, you have to understand, um, there's something happened. I told you Thess- Thessalonica's position was perfect. Major routes. It was an intersection for these major routes. Lots of people, the harbor, many religions, many walks of life. Something happened um, while preaching in the synagogue during their time in Thessalonica. Now, if you're taking notes, you're going to want to write down Acts 17. The book of Acts, of course, is a book of action, right? Actions of the apostles, what happened, what they did in ministry. And Acts 17 tells the story. Now, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to tell you that it is why this letter was written. What happened in Acts 17 is the reason 
this letter was written. And it tells us, I'll give you a little brief description here, Acts 17 tells us that there was an uprising among some of the jealous Jews who wanted to arrest Paul for treason, and that is against the Roman emperor treason against the Roman emperor. The reason for this disturbance is because Paul was proclaiming another king, again named Jesus. So, before he could be arrested, before he could be arrested, they sent him away. He just up and left. So both the Jews and Gentiles that were converted, as well as some of the leading women in this city, as they were converted, as they were believing the message that they heard, Paul had to leave. And we know for sure that Paul, Silas, and Timothy reasoned with them in the synagogue for three Sabbaths, about three weeks. But they were probably there much longer, even up to three months, if not more, folks. So we don't know the exact time, but we do know that this church was still new. This was a new church that was founded by this missionary group, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and it was vulnerable where it was in Thessalonica. So being there possibly three months, they could have been there longer, like I said, they were able to teach and preach Jesus Christ to this group who heard and who believed. Jews, Gentiles, and it's important because there were leading women who also believed in this city. So, Paul was concerned. Paul was greatly concerned for this new church. He was concerned that they might not be able to withstand the threat of persecution, and perhaps they misunderstood while he just up and left them. Maybe they were questioning that as well, but he was concerned. So Paul sends Timothy back. He sends Timothy back to encourage them, and when Paul receives the report back from Timothy and, 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 and along with, about the church and along with what has been sounded forth that we read in Scripture, these reports back to him, how the people's faith was uh, rang out, how they, how they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Well, can you imagine Paul's joy? Can you imagine him receiving the report from Timothy, but also hearing from others the message back about this church of the Thessalonians? I'm sure Paul was overjoyed in hearing all of this. Part of Paul's mission, though, and you have to understand Paul for a second, part of his mission was to plant churches strategically, planting them in populated areas so that they could take the message of Jesus to other cities and other districts. And Thessalonica was positioned perfectly for this, both in travel and in communication. So this is how the word of the Lord was sounded forth, making its way back to Paul. And what did he hear in this report? What did he hear about the church of the Thessalonians? Well, he heard all about what I like to define as fruitful evidence, which is the title of today's sermon, fruitful evidence. Now, let's get to the substance. In this letter, why did Paul give thanks to God always on behalf of the Thessalonian church? Why did he constantly mention this church in prayer? Why did he remember this church before God? It tells us, it says, because of their work of faith, 
their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. In who? In the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have faith, love, and steadfastness. Faith, love, and hope, excuse me, steadfastness is an outworking of that. We have faith, love, and hope. These are essential qualities to the Christian life. If you think of your Christian life right now, do these three pop up? Because these are essential qualities of our life. And what about the practical workings of these qualities? What I mean by the practical workings of these qualities, uh, the result of their faith is works right? Works confirms faith, does it not? The result of their love is labor. Labor flows from love. And hope, what emerges from their hope? Well, that is steadfastness or endurance. When we are hopeful for something, we endure. And this is what Paul is pointing out. I will tell you that I find it very interesting that Paul attaches these three words of practicality to the essential qualities of faith, love, and hope. The reason I find it interesting, when you think of work, labor, and endurance, all three of these can be measured. They can be measured. Biblical measurements for evaluating our individual maturity and on a corporate level, meaning our church, our local church church. And in turn, God uses these essential qualities. He uses faith, love, and hope with their counterparts, right? The measured results of work, labor, and endurance to do what? To be a model, to be a model, to be an example, to become a pattern of spiritual growth for others and other churches. That's what was happening. The Thessalonian church became a prototype, if you will, It became a prototype for other believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They became an influence on others in this fruitful behavior. That's what was happening when Paul was hearing these reports. This church stood out because it had sounded forth what was happening. So let's talk about fruitful evidence for a sec. These people had been saved, most likely just a few months, okay, brand new. They did not have the instruction that you and I have today, yet they were enthusiastic for their witness of Christ. That is easy to see. They witnessed by their walk. That's their conduct of living, right? Their walk. They witnessed by their talk, the message that was sounded out, what was ringing out. That is a witness to them. So not only their walk and talk rang out, was sent forth, was spread, but the church in Thessalonica Thessalonica, they were producing a fruitful evidence, and here it is, of lives that had been changed. When we talk about the witness of walking and the witness of talking, what's being sent out, we're talking about a church or a people group that has been changed, and that's what's being spoken of. In fact, we're going to look within our text at each of these. So let's talk about the work of faith as an essential quality to the Christian life. Work is a measured feature of faith. It is a feature that goes beyond just believing. It's beyond belief. In fact, work must be the feature of true faith because, now listen to this, it's a feature of true faith because 
It involves us complying with the will of God who is the object of that will. So we are complying. See, work has a feature uh, that goes beyond believing in absolute truth. It is a personal trust in the living and true God, and you know what it's like to live a life in personal trust. There's action involved. There is work involved. So the Thessalonians provide us with an example of their work of faith in verse 9. Look at verse 9. That they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, you have to understand that's a short sentence, but it is huge as to what's happening in this area and in this people. They're turning from one thing to another. We've all done that. We've all made that turn. Our fruitful evidence is that the people in this church had to have been renewed. They had to have put on the new self. They had to have taken on a new identity because they now had the spiritual resources, you ready for this, to imitate Christ and so were able to walk worthy. Something happened to these people where they were able to walk worthy and imitate Christ. The ability to walk worthy comes from the process of transformation. And folks, this is the change that Paul saw in their lives and the work of faith. Now let's talk about labor of love. Labor is the measured feature of love, love for God and love for our fellow man. However, and I'm sure we'll all agree with this, we cannot love others, not like Christ expects us to, until our love is rooted in the love for God first. I can't love you until I love God first. And you get me, right? That's exactly how this works. This labor is you and I reflecting the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Thessalonians give us a wonderful example of this in verse 6. By imitating the Christ-like love that they saw in Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Their time with those missionaries, they saw Christ-like love and they began to imitate that. Paul said, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, meaning you know that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were imitating the Lord, and they wanted them to imitate this missionary group, thus imitating the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So for you and me to be able to build one another up, right? For you and me to build each other up, we must demonstrate Christ's love. We must imitate Christ's love in all our relationships. Now that is a heavy thing to, uh, to deal with right there. Did you hear what I said? In all relationships. Their labor, church family, their labor in this kind of love is the change that Paul saw in their lives. So we have a work of faith that's being seen, and we have a labor of love that is a witness to this church. Well, let's talk about the steadfastness of hope. Your steadfastness, which also means your patience, your endurance, which is, I like the word endurance, is the measured feature of hope. See, Jesus Christ is the object. He is the great object, actually, of the Christian's hope. 
in spite of the persecution that they were facing, and you remember what I talked about. This is the reason I wanted to explain Thessalonica to you. They were surrounded by anything other than Jesus. Cults galore, other religions, mysticism, they were surrounded by it. There were many walks of life. But in spite of the persecution that they were facing, we re- that we read about in verse 6, because we know they were facing affliction, the church in Thessalonica gives us an example of their hope in verse 10. Look at verse 10. What does it say? And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Their hope was grounded in Jesus' return and their rescue from the coming wrath. Is it that our hope as well? To be delivered from the, from the coming wrath and waiting on our Lord and Savior Jesus to come back for us? You know what? When we are in Christ, church family, hear me when I say this, please. This is, this is big. When we are in Christ, we belong to Christ. When we are in Christ, we are in union with Christ. When we are in Christ, there is nothing and no one who can separate us from Christ. So our hope in Christ is paramount to the Christian faith and our walk. So this, my friends, is our eternal hope and security. When we are in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is why the church in Thessalonica could endure its affliction, could endure its persecution because of that. And this is the change that Paul saw in their lives. It makes me think of church maturity. It's very interesting to me. Here's another thing that's brought to my mind this week. I find it very interesting that the criteria that Paul uh, uses here to measure maturity in this local church differs greatly from the church of today. It differs greatly from the church of today in how success is evaluated. The focus should always be on quality over quantity. We know that. But the focus today is not so much the, 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 the essential qualities. It's how many people were here? How many people were this? What's the quota? What's the record? What's the money? What are we going to do about this? What's the next thing? We're missing it. The church of today is missing it. They need to go back to the times of Paul and look at evaluating not only our local church here at Grace Fellowship, but our personal lives by measuring ourselves against the grace of God. And that's where the church is making a mistake today. So let me put it this way. In each of these essential qualities, in each of these essential qualities and the practical outworkings of these qualities, being our work, our labor, and our steadfastness, I ended all three with this statement. As we talked about each group, work of faith, labor of love, and the endurance of hope, I ended it with this. I said, this is the change that Paul saw in their lives. Now, although this church was new, they confirmed that God had chosen them. Verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Now, this is significant. Paul expounds more on this confirmation, this change due to the evidence that is presented. First, as we read in verse 5, because the gospel came to them not only in word, but it came to them in the power and in the Holy Spirit with what? Full conviction. 
I know you've been convicted, I have. We know what conviction is. The Holy Spirit convicts us. The power of the Holy Spirit came on these people with full conviction, even though it was brand new. So not only had God called them through the preaching of the gospel, but they also responded to Him with faith. They were called and they responded, and this response was accompanied by the power of the Spirit and by the resulting conviction that they experienced. So in Paul's eyes, all of this evidence pointed to the fact that God has chosen you. That's what he said to them. God has chosen you. Another word for that is election. You are elected into this. Now, I know the word election scares people. It's a frightening word these days. It's, it's divisive. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Folks, election is a doctrine in Scripture. The doctrine of election is a real thing. Can I tell you where the issue lies, though, with people? It's not the word election, because that's real and true. We are elect. Election, is, the main issue is about the condition of it. Because, see, there's different views to election. There's the view of unconditional election. There's the view of conditional election. There's the view of corporate election. And that's the problem with many people today in church where there's divisiveness is that they, they, they argue against the condition of it. And what I'm trying to say today, which we can't really go into, if we went into each of those, we'd be here for hours. But what I'm trying to get to is this. Election is a way of saying that God, it's His work. He is taking the initiative in salvation. It's a God thing. Another thing about election is it's based entirely on God's grace. Another thing about election is that um, it stems from God but involves a human response. There has to be a response to the call in the gospel. So I don't want that word to frighten you. And this is what happened here in Thessalonica, folks. These factors had convinced the hearers, you ready? The hearers, they were convinced of the truth of the gospel, and it was, they were enabled then to accept it and live it out. This is how Paul knew that God had chosen them. They were able to live it out as their subsequent behavior demonstrated. We know that behavior demonstrates what we believe and what we live out. So no matter your view, brothers and sisters, look at me, no matter your view, if you're an unconditional, if you're a conditional, if you're a corporate, no matter, you have to understand that it is easy to see they produced the evidence that they were part of the elect. See, the mystery of God's election and man's decision will never be fully explained. So I want you just to keep in mind that. But the Bible uh, teaches both. The Bible teaches both. Now, how do you reconcile these two truths? A man once asked Spurgeon this. Spurgeon was a very influential pastor in the 1800s. Uh, I've, I like him very much, and, and, and he was a big uh, proponent of election. Obviously, we are too because it is a doctrine. But he said this, when the man asked, him, how do you reconcile these two truths? The preacher replied, hey, I never try to reconcile friends. These twin truths of election and decision are not contradictory, they are complementary. So as far as God the Father is concerned, we were saved when He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. As far as the Spirit is concerned, we were saved when we responded to His call and received Christ. 
He goes on to say, and as far as the Son is concerned, we were saved when He died for us up on the cross. See, Jesus was chosen. He was the chosen one. You know that. Jesus was elect. The, 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 the Israel, Israel was the chosen people. They were elect. So how did Paul know these people were saved? When he got all these reports back and, and the message was coming back to him from others, how did he realize that they were saved? How did he know that they were part of the elect? Because of the fruitful evidence being displayed in their lives. What they were living out in their lives proved that they were chosen by God. The power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling them, uh, enabling them to accept these truths. This was the reality of what was happening in this church, and I bet Paul smiled ear to ear. So I bring you this story today, and I ask my next question, what about you? I'm putting it now all on you, because we are just like the Thessalonian church. We're positioned perfectly in a place where travel is not an issue, communication is not an issue, right? We have roads that lead in and we have roads that lead out, and my goodness, do we have endless ways to communicate. Absolutely. So that's not an issue. What are we sounding forth? What is ringing out from our church? What would someone hear about us? See, God has given us faith. God has given us love. God has given us hope. But my question is, what are we doing with these essential qualities that have been given to us? What are we doing with them? If we truly belong to God, if we can make the claim that we are children of God, if we are identifying and telling others our identity is, uh, are we are a Christian, and that's our identity, is there fruitful evidence to prove these claims that you're making? Your identity, your belonging, the fact that you're a child of God. Is there evidence to prove these claims? The reality is that we have to evaluate our church and ourselves like Paul did with the church that they founded, that he, Silas, and Timothy had founded, and that is measuring our work in the faith that we have been given. That is measuring our labor and the love that we have been given. That is measuring our endurance and the love, or excuse me, in the hope that we have been given. Are we measuring these things? Because we need to be measuring these against the grace of God. Are we providing fruitful evidence that there was a change in our lives? Paul said, when he got all this information, I can imagine, I see the change. They're chosen. I know what happened here. There is a great change. Are we living out what changed in our lives? Christians, listen to me. The gospel has come to you in word. It has. And in the power of the Holy Spirit with conviction. We're not faking it. Are there those that do fake? You better believe it. An endless number of people that profess Christianity. And yes, I hate to say it, even people behind the pulpit. But we have to realize that we as 
Christians, when we have the Holy Spirit and we're taken in God's Word, there has to be a change. It has to be a real conviction. This transformation, this change is internal. It's happening inside us, but is manifested. It's made known and sounded forth, like Scripture tells us, in the practical outpourings of our faith, labor, and love. Work, labor, and endurance. Faith, love, and hope. These are the the outpourings that become evidence. And this is what I like to call a fruitful evidence. Evidence of a life that is in Christ. Evidence of a life that is lived for Christ. Does your life reflect this? Does your life reflect this? Is this the kind of change evident in your life? You know, we know, the Bible tells us, we know that a tree is known by its fruit. If we go pick a piece of fruit from a tree, we know that that particular tree is what it is because of the fruit. It's no different from the Christian. It's no different. The question is this then, and only you can answer this. This is, this is the question. Are you sending forth fruitful evidence of a life in Christ? I'm not going to add any other words to that. Are you sending forth fruitful evidence of a life in Christ? That's the question for you. We can't evaluate ourselves by today's standards. We can't. We need to go back to the biblical times where Paul is looking at this church and evaluating them with these essential qualities that stem from the love of God and, and in choosing us. See, our evaluation should look like Paul's. We should be measuring ourselves in our work of faith, always, in our labor of love, and in our endurance of hope. They've been given to each of us. What are we doing with them? Because they require a practical work whether it be work, labor, or endurance. They require that. It's been given to us. Was it real for you? Again, only you can answer the question. Am I sending forth fruitful evidence of a life in Christ? Thessalonica proved that they were. It was real. And that's how Paul came to this conclusion. Because the Word came to them in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Look what they've turned from. Look how they're living. I can see the change in all these things. These are essential qualities to the Christian life. This is for you and I. Folks, our faith is a beautiful gift we've been given. Are we confirming that faith through the works? Love. All of this is because of love. Are we laboring in love for others because of God's love for us? And are we enduring affliction and persecution and trials and pain? Are we enduring because of the hope we've been given? Everything we've been given is the most beautiful gifts. Uh, There's no price tag you could ever put on them. But we have to respond as chosen ones. We have to respond in the practical parts to this. That's what we're called to do. So, Christians, when you leave here today, 
I want you to leave asking yourself, am I sending forth fruitful evidence of a life in Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. Father, you, you, you give us what we need always. Lord, when we open this book and turn the pages, you always give us what we need. And Lord, to see this church in action, to see the change with full conviction, turning from one way to another. Father God, we've done that. And if we, happen, if we haven't, Lord, I pray for those that haven't, they come to the reality of who you are and the love for them and take you into their heart and accept you as their Savior here today. But for those of us who believe, Father, it goes beyond belief. For those who believe in the truth of the gospel, it goes beyond that. Because in our trusting you, in our personal relationship, you call us to work, labor, and endure. And that's my prayer for every Christian in here today, Lord, that when we leave here, we realize what you've given us, faith, love, hope, that we utilize these wonderful qualities, these gifts, and we let them flow out of us to others. Let it be communicated to others. Let it travel and, and spread forth from Grace Fellowship. Let it spread forth, forth from us individually. Father, that's my prayer today. Let us take seriously these essential qualities that you have blessed us with and let us work those qualities, Father, for you because we love you. So that's my prayer, Heavenly Father. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this time together. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.